Hello and welcome again to another edition of Locked in Science, where the Lost in Science team are still locked in, but still producing radio for your ears. And just because we're locked in doesn't mean science has stopped. There is a lot of science still going on. On this week's show, Claire, what have you brought for us or brought forth for us because you haven't actually gone anywhere. You're right, I haven't gone anywhere. But, you know, my mind has travelled, Stu. My mind has travelled and, and that is the important thing. You really know where you're going in social isolation when your mind travels to primate pheromones. Um, <laughs> and that is the topic of my uh, story today because researchers for the first time have discovered uh, pheromones in ring-tailed lemurs. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about that and why that's important. And, and what do ring-tailed lemurs do with their pheromones? You're going to explain the whole deal to us. I will explain the whole monkey business. Ah, uh, that's great. Chris? Yes, well, um, I think last week I alluded to some uh, goings-on that's happening in the world aside from coronavirus. But before I get into that, um, I just want to say that, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that is obviously being interrupted by the, the COVID-19 pandemic, coronavirus. Um, a message that I think that needs to be put out there, though, uh, this is my community service announcement component of the, the um, piece, by the way. Guys, I hope you're impressed. I'm doing a community service announcement. Is that um, people apparently are very reluctant to go to the hospital these days because of fears of COVID-19. Uh, but if you have an medical emergency or if you have a, an urgent health condition, you do need to still go to the hospital. You need to call triple O. Don't be afraid to call triple O if you think you're having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, because that is still a very important emergency and you shouldn't ignore that just because there is a virus out there. The rest of the hospital is still going on working as is, is what you're trying to say there, Chris. Hospitals are still working and there is more than one medical emergency in the world, you know, um, yeah. that uh, if you're having a serious health condition, then perhaps that's going to be more of a danger to you than um, the chance of getting COVID-19. Very useful, very important message. Yes. Speaking of things that are urgent and are important in time of coronavirus, the climate is still changing uh, the environment is still being destroyed. And last week I alluded to the fact that the Great Barrier Reef has experienced its third bleaching event in five years. So I'm going to I'm going to take some time now to cover that a bit more properly and talk about what is actually happening there uh, and how serious it is. Lots of stuff coming up, so please do stay tuned.
So if you're anything like me, then watching animal live streams from the zoo has been a major part of getting you through these socially isolated times. Um, one of my favourite animals at the zoo, which uh, I haven't yet seen on video cam, but I'm very close to beginning the campaign, is in fact the ring-tailed lemurs. Um, you guys would know the ring-tailed lemurs. I don't know how fondly you think of them, but I think they're pretty great. Can you describe a ring-tailed lemur for us? Yeah, so imagine like, you know, soft, cute, maybe about 30, 40 centimetres high, little grey fur, but beautiful, um, beautiful tail with sort of banded stripes, so this ring tail of like black and white, and then like sort of black, black bespectacled eyes as well. Um, lemurs are primates, they're... Um, they live in Madagascar um, and they, um, they are also um, remind me of Europeans in the middle of August because if you see them at the zoo, they're always like have their arms sort of out wide and they're sunning their bellies. It's very, very cute. Anyway, um, <laughs> I love the ring-tailed lemurs. Maybe it's, maybe it's cooler... Uh, where you see them in the zoo than it is in Madagascar, so they're just absorbing as much sun as they possibly can. <laughs> Maybe, indeed. Um, so I was pretty curious when I read that some new primate research about ring-tailed lemurs has just been published. It's actually out of Japan, it's not out of Madagascar, um, but it shows that lemurs produce sex pheromones. And interestingly, this is the first documented case of a primate producing pheromones. Um, so it might be worth going back a bit and highlighting what a pheromone actually is in sort of general terms. So yeah, so pheromones are chemical sim signals. They've evolved for communication between members of the same species. So a pheromone signal will create a very specific reaction um, in the receiver. And this could be uh, a behavior or it could be like some sort of developmental process. And all sorts of molecules, large and small, have been found um, to act as pheromones. Uh, and depending, yeah, depending on whether the message is sent out on wind or water or placed directly onto the nose or antenna of the recipient. So, for example, ants use pheromones to mark trails. Beetles use pheromones to initiate an aggregation, so they all cluster together in the one spot for one reason or another and many animals um, use pheromones or sex pheromones to show they are available for mating. So one thing to remember is that most pheromones are detected by a sense of smell. However, not all smells are pheromones. So for example, mammals, including humans, give off a cloud of molecules that represent our, I guess, you know, unique individual, our unique individual smell or our chemical profile. Um, these differences uh, between individuals make it possible for dogs to know who each other are just by smell. Um, or even with humans, it's um, important for parents, you know, parents can have been shown to be able to distinguish their baby from other babies just by the smell. So that's smell. So so when a um when a celebrity puts out a perfume and it's their scent, 
Is it their scent? Is this the kind of thing we're talking about? <laughs> well, it's not pheromones, that's for sure. There are no, there haven't been shown to be any human pheromones, but it might be, you know, it could be their scent. Um, but at the same time, I mean, humans' natural scent don't normally smell like those cheap perfumes that you buy at the chemist, chemist, chemist warehouse, do they? Okay. Bet they smell, they smell better often. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so, yeah, so these smells that, you know, like dog smelling and um, the way a baby smells, they're not, they're not pheromones, as in they're not isolated chemical signals that elicit a specific behaviour or, de- or developmental process. Anyway, so um, back to lemurs and um, actually, you know, a side note, um, do you know what a group of lemurs is called? Anybody? No. A leap of lemurs? It is called a conspiracy of lemurs. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Mm. So, yes, back to the conspiracy of lemurs and something called stink flirting. Stink flirting? Yeah, stink flirting. Um, This is what male lemurs do during breeding season. So they rub their wrist glands. So lemurs also have these wrist glands. Um, they rub their wrist glands against their fluffy tails with the, with the um, band sort of stripes on them. And then they wave them at females. Um, moreover, these, these wrist glands, um, they smell like fruit during breeding season. So they have this sort of like fruity perfume during breeding season. Uh, but then when it's not breeding season, the smell is really bitter. So, so it's like this, it's, I mean, it's, it's a perfume. It's pretty much, you know, it's pretty much that celebrity perfume that you were talking about, Chris. Mm. So the ring-tailed lemur scent. So the, um, the, uh, the, male, the male lemurs basically ripen as they come into the mating season. They start off and they're all bitter and then they smell all sweet and fruity when it's the right time of the year. Is that, That's basically what you're saying, right? That is, I mean, it's not what I'm saying. This is the science. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, the primordial primate. So, you know, this is where it all began. Um, yeah, so the ring-tailed lemur's scent glands typically show rank and territory but um, researchers have observed that these scent glands uh, have, have been catching the attention of females. Um, and during breeding season, when they smell fruity, uh, the females are attracted and their attention um, is attracted for much longer periods and more frequently. Um, and then when the researchers isolated the gland secretion, they took it from the little lemur wrists and presented it to the females, they had the same response. They would smell it a lot longer and more frequently um, than they would during the off-season. So they hypothesized that there was some sort of um, very specific chemical here used to communicate uh, during breeding season. So some type of pheromone was at play. Um, so they did what, uh, what any good chemist does and went to their chromatography mass spectrometry mass spectrometry um, analysis and they found three major components in the wrist glands 
So these are three aldehyde compounds, um, dodecanol, 12-methyltridecanol, and tetradecanol for those um, people who love aldehyde compounds playing at home. Um, now these three co chemical compounds were present in both secretions, but they were much higher during breeding season. Um, and then when they isolated all of these um, all, all of these aldehydes uh, and then put them all together and presented them to females to double check whether there was any response, they found that it was only the, a mixture of all three of these chemicals that was significantly um, or had a, had a um, significant response on the female's attention. So she was much more interested and more frequently interested. Um, so yeah, weirdly, these three compounds, I mean, maybe not weirdly, but these three compounds, they've been suggested to be involved in the recognition of newborn sheep by their mothers. Um, and one of them is actually a known sex pheromone in some insect species. Um, so hang on, lemurs smell like newborn sheep? Is this what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's weird that these same same types of molecules as pheromones keep popping up in different places in the animal world. Um, so you've got sex pheromones in different types of insects, um, which will produce a similar response in a lemur. Um, so yeah, it's there must be something about these um, these chemicals that make them very fitting communication tools. Whether that's um, you know the communication between a newborn sheep and its um, and its mother, or communication between um, lemurs to tell you that it's breeding season. Um, so this is especially interesting because we sort of assume that primates are very visual creatures um, and, you know, that's why there haven't been any pheromones isolated from humans, you know, where we're, we're visually stimulated. Um, but this shows that maybe that's not the case because, well, this is one primate that does have pheromones. Um and the researchers say that the next step steps are to work out what happens after the pheromones stink flirting um, and see if it leads to reproductive success based on the chemistry. Um, so, yeah, I hazard to guess they might be seeing a fair bit more um, private lemur business and um, they might teach us a thing or two um, about this primate business.
listen to Lost in Science, and yeah, I'm talking about the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. This is the third bleaching event that's happened within five years, and it is the fifth severe bleaching on record. So the first bleaching that was noticed was back in uh, the El Nino year of 1998. Uh, and there has been another one in 2002. Then there was another one in 2016. And then back to back, very nicely, 2017. And now we have it again in 2020. Uh, and this is really bad for, for the reef, as you can probably imagine. Um, but first of all, before we talk about, uh, get very serious and say, well, I mean, this is whole thing is serious. But before um, we all start shaking our heads at the at the wrongness of it let's just say what is bleaching coral bleaching um i'm assuming you guys know someone tipped some white king in the ocean and it bleached the coral is that was that what happened that's right someone spilt some some yeah some bleach that's probably what happened there Stu. not quite really so it really? i mean it's a it's a disturbance of the um the symbiotic relationship that happens um between little animals that live um within the coral right yeah so the um as you know the the coral is like a living organism it's a little animal that builds these massive structures out of calcium carbonate and but it it most gets most of its food from a symbiotic relationship with single-celled algae uh that live within their within the, um, the actual um, coral polyp itself. So these, um, these algae are called, they're, well, they're known as zoosanthellae. Zoosanthellae. What? Zoosanthellae, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, it's got Z-double-O, so I tend to overdo that stage of it. But yeah, they're zoosanthellae. Um, so basically these uh, little plants, microscopic plants that live within the animal, that is the coral, um, they they get a nice safe home from the coral, but in return they photosynthesize and they produce food for the coral. So it's a very good, it's a very good arrangement. It works for both of them. Uh, but it is quite, um, it does depend on certain environmental conditions. So what happens when things go wrong, when you get stuff like, uh, mostly it's when the water gets too warm, is that the, the zooxanthellae starts to play up. It produces some um, reactive oxygen species, which is uh, not actually an animal, it is a chemical that uh, reacts uh, you know, small bits of chemicals that react um, very strongly with other things, and they can damage the coral animal that the that the zooxanthellae are inside of. Um, so it's actually quite toxic to the coral. So they actually spit out the the zooxanthellae. So it's their re response to the the bad reaction that the zooxanthellae is causing. Trouble is, when they spit out the algae, then they don't have their food source anymore. And that is, of course, bad for them. The, um, the algae are also, I should point out, they are the things that give the coral its colour. So all those beautiful colours you see in the Great Barrier Reef are caused by these single-celled zooxanthellae. So when they are expelled, also the coral becomes white, and which is why it is, it is bleaching. So um, the coral can survive 
uh, without the algae, but it's certainly lacking in food. It will starve to death eventually, and it becomes a lot weaker, and it's more vulnerable to other things that can happen, like diseases and uh, predators, like snails that eat the that eat the coral. So, like I said, this um this sort of bad chain reaction tends to happen when the water temperature is warmer. So this is why you get it in the uh, you know, often get in the El Nino years, such as 1998 um, and 2016, which is the worst one on records. Um, but it is increasingly happening in years when there is not an El Nino effect. And this is, of course, due to the warming of the climate due to climate change. Um, so 2017 was a really good example of that. This was like straight after this really bad event in 2016. The next year, there was another one. And the combination was that but you know, two thirds of the coral on the reef was lost, which is pretty severe. So want to know how bad it is this year. You know, so early this year it was noticed that, uh, well, particularly we've had an extremely, um, extremely warm summer. The, the temperatures, the ocean temperatures in February were the highest observed on record. So it was pretty clear that there was going to be some sort of bleaching. Um, so scientists from the Center of Research Excellence in Reef Studies based at James Cook University, they have recently done an aerial survey to find out what the damage is. So the last two weeks of March, they took to the air and they looked at 1,036 reefs across the whole Great Barrier Reef complex. And they found that um, there was 40% of the reef had little or no bleaching. 35% um, had um, kind of low, sort of low levels of bleaching, and 25% of the coral of the reefs, sorry, were severely affected. And uh, yeah, so that is that is um, so it's not all the reefs are equally affected, but uh, yeah, a quarter of them were really badly affected. Um, and but the other thing that is actually different to the previous times is what is that uh, in previous events it's sort of been more localized a lot of the bleaching. So in 2016 it was mostly in the north of the of the um, of the reef. Uh, in the in 2017 it was more in the central regions. Now it's all throughout, including some of the southern areas of the Great Barrier Reef that had been pretty much spared so far. So yeah, things aren't looking things aren't looking very good. Um, it is hard to compare precisely with the previous events how bad it is because you need to follow up these aerial surveys by some underwater surveys to actually go down and dive and look at it. Uh, and that clearly takes some time to do. This aerial survey has been fairly recently done. Also, there's it's a bit harder to do some of this intensive research at the moment due to the the COVID nineteen restrictions. But um, yeah, look, it is very much uh, damaging, particularly having these bleaching events seem to get closer and closer together because it takes the it takes the coral some time to recover if it can recover at all. Uh, and so that's the other interesting thing to point out is that the um, not all the the corals on the reef are equally affected. So um, you know the the uh, the worst ones affect tend to be the the kind of the delicate branching coral. Um, and yeah, they're the ones that have been hit the hardest in the past. And as a result, they're more likely to die out and you're going to get the more robust species um, remaining. So it's kind of, well, I hesitate to say natural selection, but it's a form of selection working on, on the reef itself. But even if you get these repetitive um, bleaching events so close together, then it becomes harder for even the toughest species to, to respond. 
So yeah, look, um, there are there are things being explored to try and um, uh, find ways to to make the coral more resilient. There are species of coral around the world that are more resilient to high temperatures. As I said, there's also the forces of evolution which can kind of compensate with some of these warmer temperatures as well. But you know, the best thing to do would be to not have the warm temperatures, which is this whole kind of idea that we want to do is try and keep. The, um, the warming to a manageable amount. Thank you for joining us on another edition of Locked in Science, where we have been taking a trip to the uh, increasingly bleached uh, barrier reef and also a quick trip to Madagascar via Japan to find out what time of year do lemurs stink uh, and flirt with each other. Um, if you've got any questions about any of the stories that we've covered on Locked in Science this week, or indeed if you would like to inspire us by asking us some questions that we could answer for you on another edition, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on the Facebook and various places like Twitter as well if you would like to engage. Um, Lost, Lost in Science is usually recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at the moment at various locations around the city. Uh, we are broadcast across Australia on the Community Broadcasting Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Um, as I said, you can contact us in all sorts of different ways, or you can just sit back and relax and wait until next week. When once again Claire, Stu, and Chris will be locked, locked in
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.